We're looking again to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll begin reading today with verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We're talking about living hope. We've been talking about this living hope now. This is the third Sunday. And Peter, as he writes to these exiles, these pilgrims who are being persecuted as they follow the Lord Jesus, he calls them and he calls us to praise. He calls us to bless God. And he's given us plenty of reason already. One, because we've been born again. He said in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We should praise God, first of all, because He has saved us. Because He has taken us who were dead in our trespasses and sins, no hope, no help, nothing we could do to to bring ourselves to God. He sent His Son to die on a cross, and He sent His Holy Spirit to raise your dead soul to life, so that you can walk with Him. So one, we've been born again, but two, we have an inheritance in heaven. He said in verse 4, to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you. It is sure. It is secure. It's not going anywhere. We have an inheritance if we've been born again. And third, not only have we been born again, that we have an inheritance. And it's not just that the inheritance is secure, but we are secure by God's power to reach it. He said in verse 5, You who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I'm thankful that, yes, I have been born again. I'm thankful, yes, that there is an inheritance secure for me in heaven. But I am also thankful that I am guaranteed to make it there. There's nothing I can do to blow it on the way. Because I am kept by the power of God. For that day. So truly, Peter says, when we look and begin in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. We have plenty of reason to rejoice and to praise God. Knowing that this world isn't all there is, that we have hope that extends beyond this earthly life, is plenty of reason to pause, not only on Sunday, but every single day of our lives, and give praise and blessing to God. This is our living hope. But the next two words that he uses in verse 6 are this. Though now. Now. That tells us that there's more than just future promises wrapped up in this living hope. 
The hope that we have in Christ, yes, it points us to a future after we die. It points us to a future after Christ comes again. But there are elements of this living hope that impact our lives even now. There are benefits that we as Christians experience right now that belong to this living hope. We have a hope that's perpetually alive, not only because of what we receive when our lives on earth are over, but because of the transforming work that God does in us through the trials that we face. Peter is speaking to Christians who are experiencing trials. So he says in verse 6, "...in this you greatly rejoice." Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. The the simple reality is this. We all experience trials. Is there anyone among us who has lived their life to this point and can say with total honesty that they have experienced no trials, no suffering, no pain? Some of us have been through more than others. People like me, really, I've had a good life. But even as good a life as I've had, there have been things that I've gone through that I did not want to go through. And all of you can say the same. And anyone who would tell you that it is not the will of God for Christians to go through trials and through suffering and through pain has not read 1 Peter or much else of the Bible, for that matter. But the Christian response that that we see in Scripture, the precedent that is set, is that Christians rejoice in trials. Christians rejoice in trials. Let me give you some examples. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Here's the command. Rejoice and be glad. Are you kidding me? When they hate you, when they speak evil of you, when they want to kill you, Jesus says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Apostle Paul said of the Thessalonians, You became followers of us and the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, comma, with joy of the Holy Spirit. With joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. The Thessalonian Christians were examples because even though they were being persecuted... They had joy. James gave a command to the Christians who read his letter. He said, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or endurance. One of my favorite scenes from the book of Acts uh, is when the apostles have been preaching. This is early on in the, in the book, around chapter 5. They've been preaching. People are being saved. The Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, they don't like it. 
People are following these Christians. We thought we did away with Jesus. He was done for. This wasn't going to be our problem anymore. So they arrest the apostles. They were beaten. They commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. And how did the apostles reply? Acts chapter 5 says, So they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. And then what did they do? It says, And daily in the temple, in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. So we have this precedent, we have this uh, example for us, even commands throughout Scripture that when Christians face suffering, and suffering is inevitable, the natural response for a Christian, and it can only be for a Christian, is to have joy, is to rejoice. Now, let me just say this, this isn't to diminish the reality of suffering. Trials hurt. Suffering is painful. This doesn't mean that Christians go through trials just laughing and giddy like it's no big deal. Because let's be honest, it is a big deal. Even in the last year or two, many of you have gone through things that I can't imagine going through myself. So I don't want to diminish the reality of suffering. Suffering is real. Grief is real. Sadness is real. It is okay for Christians to grieve. It is okay for Christians to weep. But we don't do it like people who don't have hope. We can weep and then put a smile on because the Lord is good. How can we rejoice in suffering? Why is it that Christians can walk through pain, through grief, through suffering, through persecution, through trials with joy? Peter gives us a couple of reasons. First, the, the trials are temporary. The trials are temporary. He says there in verse 6 that it's for just a little while. Just a little while. Now, it doesn't feel that way. Sometimes we go through seasons of suffering, seasons through trials, and you look and you say, will this ever end? There is no light at the end of the tunnel, but Peter wants us to keep the perspective that in comparison to eternity, our suffering now is just a little while. Paul told the Corinthians, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our, listen, he calls it, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. When compared to the weight of glory... Our afflictions are light. Compared to the length of eternity, our sufferings, even if they last 70 years, is but for a moment. What are 70 years compared to the 10 million that will just be getting started in heaven? 
He also told the Romans, we we read it this morning, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. As intense as your trial seems, as intense as your suffering seems right now, really, they're not worthy to be compared with what awaits the Christian. Trials really are just for a little while. But I did say that there's more than just the promise of an eternal future in this living hope, right? So trials are temporary and we can rejoice because of that. But second, we can rejoice in trials because our trials have a purpose. They have a purpose. Peter says this, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Now that, if need be, or that if it's necessary, the implication of it is, it is necessary. Peter could have said, you're going to be grieved by by various trials if it's necessary, and oh, by the way, it is. It is necessary. Now for Peter's audience, just like with some of you, the thought that their trials were somehow necessary might have left them scratching their heads. How could it really be necessary that I go through what I'm going through? But God always has purpose for the suffering that enters the life of the Christian. He explains in verse 7, that, this is our purpose, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your trials have a purpose. Now we all understand this imagery, right? He's talking about gold being put through the fire. Gold, like other metals, put into a fire, not just for kicks, but for a purpose, right? What's the purpose? To purify it. To take that metal and place it in heat so intense that it changes the structure of, it, of the metal itself. So that the worker can go along and take out the infirmities. Burn out the impurities. There isn't much more valuable in all the world than pure gold, right? All the doomsday folks, right? The economy's going to collapse. The dollar's not going to be worth anything. What do you need to buy? Gold. They got their TV commercials. They got their radio ads. You see them on the internet. Buy gold. You can even get paper bills now that have a little bit of gold just traced in the lining all the way around. You know, so you got just enough to say you got gold and it looks like a bill. People want gold. It stood the test of time. But, Peter points out, even gold perishes. Even gold will perish. But faith that is put to the test and found pure, he says, is much more precious than gold. It will hold its value for all eternity. It will never perish. Trials have a purpose in proving our faith. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, we must expect trial 
Because trial is the element of faith. Faith without trial is like a diamond uncut. The brilliance of which has never been seen. A fish without water or a bird without air is faith without trial. It's when faith has been tried that it proves to be true faith. A lot of people say they believe in Jesus. A lot of people say they have faith in God. But really that is proven to be true or false when the hard times come. It's when faith has been tried that it proves to be true faith. Now have you ever noticed this? Most of the Christians who struggle with the assurance of their salvation... Can my faith really be real? Are they generally older Christians or younger Christians? Generally, they're younger Christians. Why? Because their faith hasn't been put to the test yet. Why is it that in the Christian life, seemingly, the longer someone is a Christian, the longer they have their faith in Christ, the longer they have been put to the test, the more sure they are. That their faith is genuine. The more assured they are that Christ is theirs and heaven is their home. Because their faith has been put to the test and proven true. You can give testimony to that. When you've been put through the fire and the impurities are, are brought out when they're burned up and, it, and it's made all the more pure from that trial... You look back and say, you know what, I don't know how I made it through that. It had to be the Lord. And that proves over and over again that your faith is genuine. That your faith is true. For the matter of assurance alone, trials are a blessing. Because it shows where our faith really is. But they also make us more like Jesus. We read again this morning in Romans 8. We know verse 28. Everybody knows Romans 8, 28. For we know that all things work together for good to them who love God. To those who are the called according to His purpose. But can I tell you the real punch for Romans 8, 28 is in verse 29. Everybody forgets the little brother verse. Why is it that we can be sure that all things work together for good for Christians? Because whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Trials are good. Things work out for your good because you are being made more like Jesus. The promise that everything works out for your good does not mean your problem is going to go away. Knowing that everything will work out for your good doesn't mean it's all going to be better. Knowing that all things work together for your good means knowing that everything you come into contact with, every trial you face, is making you look more and more like Jesus. You are being conformed to the image of Christ. That's the work that God is doing in you. That's how you can know that everything works together for your good. 
Like gold is made pure in the fire, so the Christian is made more like Christ in trials. If we're tested, our faith is proven genuine, and we're purified through trials, we will be, as Peter says, found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to cause any consternation, but when he says that we will be found to praise, honor, and glory, I don't necessarily think he's talking about just the praise and honor and glory of Christ. For the Christian who has gone through trials and their faith has proven true and they've been made more like Christ, there is a measure of praise, there is a measure of honor, and there's a measure of glory that's going to be granted to us. Now if that makes you proud, you need to get your heart right. That ought to humble you. (laughs) That God would bestow any kind of praise or glory on us. Because faith is a gift, right? He says, here, here's this gift of faith. And we take it and we exercise our faith. And then he says, oh, let me reward you for that. Let me reward you for that thing I gave you. In our discipleship group this week, we've been reading through Matthew. And we came to chapter 24 and 25 this week. And boy, that'll, that'll get your head going in circles. You know, the disciples say, when's it going to happen? And Jesus starts talking about the end of the world. And man, you can, you can spend all day trying to figure that thing out. Now, I don't know when Jesus is coming, but I think the point comes down to this. I want to be found faithful when He comes. He gave this uh, parable in chapter 25 at the, towards the end of that section. And the master said to the servant, his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's what I want to hear whenever I get to heaven. I would love to hear Jesus, my Lord, look at me. My master say to me, his servant... Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over those little things that I gave you there on earth. You know what? I'm going to give you some more here in heaven. Enter into my joy. Man, that's what we're being prepared for. If we go through trials and our faith is proven genuine and we stick with Him and we are purified, we will be found to praise and honor and glory at His revelation. Amen. Let's take note of one more thing in this passage. Our perseverance, our joy in trials is rooted in one thing, and it's rooted in love. Specifically, it's rooted in our love for Jesus. That's the only way we could really make it through, right? Verse 8, speaking of Jesus Christ, he says, Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible, And full of glory. Now he says it twice that 
the readers haven't seen Jesus. It's almost like Peter's rubbing it in, you know. Yeah, I got to see him. You haven't seen him. Now, Peter had seen Jesus. He lived with him for three years. And which disciple was it? Y'all help me remember. Which disciple was it besides Judas who had been the most unfaithful? Who was it that had his faith called into question? Who was it to whom Jesus said, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Who was it who said that he loved Jesus so much that he would die for him? But then when things got serious, he cursed Jesus and ran. And remind me, who was it who was questioned about his love for Jesus by Jesus himself three times? Oh yeah, that was Peter. Peter saw Jesus. He lived with Jesus. He knows what it's like to have his faith put to the test and to fail. He knows what it's like to have his faith called into question. He knows what it's like to really prove untrue when he said he loved Jesus. What was it Jesus told Thomas? He said, you believe because you've seen me. But blessed are those who have not seen me, yet believe. And Peter, knowing his own experience, looks at these young Christians whose faith is being seriously put to the test. They're being persecuted. They're going through trials like they've never seen. And he says about them, You haven't seen Him, but you love Him. You don't see Him now, but you believe in Him. Your faith is in Him. What an encouragement that had to be to these Christians. To hear the Apostle Peter say, You know, listen, I know you, haven't, you guys haven't seen Jesus, but it is clear to me by the way you live and the way you are enduring that you love Him. You believe in Him. Man, can that be said of us? Can that be said of you? Do trials drive you away from Jesus or do they draw you to Him all the more? Does suffering make you cling to Jesus, have faith in Jesus, love Jesus more than you ever have? Or does it make you want to throw your Christianity badge in the garbage and say, I'm done with this? You see, trials bring out what's real in us. It's like the parable Jesus told about the houses with the two foundations. One's on the rock, one's on the sand. When the storms come, the one that's on the sand, it collapses. But the house that's built on the rock, the one whose faith is true, those trials come and it stands firm. What happens to you when you face trials? Do you collapse? You take Jesus out of your pocket and throw Him away. I don't need that. It's not making my life any better. Or do you run to Him and you cling to Him all the more? You love Him all the more because you know that He's exactly what you need. We're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But trials and testing prove whether our faith is genuine. How is yours held up? Love Jesus. He loves you. Trust Jesus. 
He's trustworthy. There are examples that we could look to in all of Scripture. Some of the ones that came to mind this week was Abraham. when He had to offer Isaac on the altar. I thought about Joseph. He remained faithful through a lifetime of trials. And in the end, he looked at his brothers who had done him wrong and he said, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I think about Job who was faithful and his faith was put to the test. And at the end of it, he ended up with more than he had to start with and he had a better understanding of who God was. And we've already talked about the apostles. But I think the greatest example that we have is the Lord Jesus Himself. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. How? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured His greatest trial by looking to the joy that was set before Him. We love Him because He first loved us. May we too, out of love for Christ who saved us, rejoice through the trials that come upon us and look forward to the ultimate joy we will have when we see Him face to face at His coming. Amen.